Right, you guys can turn to Isaiah chapter 66. This morning we are, we're talking about the future. Humans have always had an insatiable desire to know the future. And in every culture, at every time, we have invented methods of trying to discover the future. Uh, just a few of them that, that we've come up with. There's astrology. That's studying the movement of the stars as omens of your future. There's cardomancy. That's studying cards like tarot cards. Uh, Palmistry, studying the lines and bumps on your palm to determine your future. Oneromancy, that's studying your dreams to determine the future. Ecstasypacy, that's the grossest method of determining the future. You slaughter a sheep and look at the entrails and it will tell you the future. There's augury, you study the flights and migration patterns of birds as omens of the future. Tassomancy, you read the future in tea leaves or coffee grounds left in your cup. There's pyromancy, you watch how smoke rises off a flame to determine the future. And then uh, this is the best one, gastromancy, practiced first by the Greeks and then many other cultures. If you want to know the future, you go listen and try to interpret the sounds made by an oracle's digestive system. You listen to the sounds their stomach makes, believing that the dead have come to live in their stomach and want to tell you the future. Well, we're too smart for any of that. We're way too intelligent to buy into any of those ridiculous, superstitious methods of determining the future. We're far more sophisticated We've developed mathematical models and we hire well-trained experts to reveal to us the future. And yet when you gather the evidence, you'll discover that even with all of our sophisticated methods, we still have an incredibly poor track record of determining the future. Incredibly poor track record uh, of determining future events. A guy named Philip Tetlock, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, began in the 1980s to study 27,451 predictions about the future that were made by by academic experts. And, And all of these future predictions, they were about geopolitical events that could happen at that time in world history. He asked them questions like, would there be a nonviolent end to apartheid in South Africa? Would Gorbachev be ousted in a coup? Would the United States go to war in the Persian Gulf? It was a, a, a pretty complex study that he put together, but the, the conclusion was remarkably simple. Uh, the experts bombed. Not, not only did they fail to beat statistical models for determining the future, but Tetlock found that, that actually if you just brought a, a monkey into the room and had him throw a dart at a wall with all the possible things that could happen in world history, the monkey's more likely to get it right. The experts proved an incredibly bad judge of the future. Humans are very bad at judging the future. That's why biblical prophecy is such a great gift. God and his grace did not leave us in the dark about the most important things to come in world history. Now, we may not know which way the stock market's going tomorrow, but we do know where the world is headed. We do know the major events that are coming for the human race, like what's going to happen to human society, what's going to happen to the church, what's going to happen to us as individuals. God has told us that. That, That's the biblical study of eschatology from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last. It's the study of, of last things, of the finale of human history. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And the reason that we're studying eschatology this morning is because Isaiah has a lot to say about it. 
Isaiah talks about the future throughout his book. All the time Isaiah is telling us about what's coming in the future. He talks about the Messiah coming and ruling. He talks about uh, the resurrection, about God's judgment, about God making all things right. Isaiah knew a ton about the future. But there was a lot that Isaiah did not yet know. Even though Isaiah is perfectly accurate in all he records, there was a lot of information about the future that God did not yet give to Isaiah, that God would fill in later as the Bible was progressively revealed. Uh, In particular, the primary thing that Isaiah lacked in, in what he could see of the future is that he lacked any sense of the timeline of how future events were gonna play out. If you read through Isaiah, you will see that that Isaiah, as he looks to the future, as he sees what God is going to do, Isaiah just sees it as one big event, the day of the Lord. And he throws everything into that one big event, resurrection, uh, Jesus, the reign of Jesus over the earth, uh, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state, all of that stuff he just sees as one big thing. He doesn't see the distinction in those events. Those details won't be revealed by God until later. Here's how I like to think of it. As Isaiah wrote his book, it's like he was standing in Denver, Colorado, looking west. And if you stand in Denver, Colorado, and you look west, what you see is this. It looks like one huge mountain, a really big mountain that you'd really like to climb. For Isaiah, it just looked like one big mountain coming. Uh, But if you hop in your car and you drive west, you discover pretty quickly, actually, you were looking at lots of mountains spread out over hundreds of square miles. You were looking at the Rocky Mountain Range. It just looked like one big mountain. It was actually lots of mountains. Well, that's what's going on for Isaiah. As he speaks about the future, he's standing in Denver, Colorado, looking west. But it will be later authors of scripture like Daniel, Paul, John, whom God will take west into the mountain range to see all of the different events that are coming in the future, to see the distinction between the events. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to hop in the car with them and head west from Isaiah. We're going to look at how the prophecies of Isaiah play out in the rest of scripture to get a sense of what is coming in our future, the the big picture, the timeline of eschatology. Now that timeline we've actually put in your bulletin. It's this little chart. You can pull that out and take notes on it as we go through. If you didn't get a bulletin, if you don't have this chart, if you'll just raise your hand, we've got guys in the back who will bring you one. So raise your hand if you didn't get one of these. Uh, We'd love for you to have a copy of this uh, and, and keep it in your Bible or keep it available to you. It will help you see how things are going to play out as you read through and study your Bible. This big timeline of biblical history, it includes four key eras or epics in the history of the world. There's the church age, that's what we're in right now. Uh, We're not going to talk about that a lot this morning. What we are going to talk about is what's coming next. That's the great tribulation, then the millennial kingdom, and then the eternal state. That's what we're going to study this morning. So let's jump right in. Let's study what's coming next in world history. The next major event for our world is the great tribulation. And if you're looking in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66 is where we're going to pick this up. Uh, Isaiah talks about the great tribulation starting in verse 14. Look with me, chapter 66, verse 14. It says, Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. What Isaiah tells us is that there is coming upon this earth a time of wrath. 
God's wrath, we've talked about that earlier this semester. God's wrath is God's righteous anger in action. It is God's judgment falling upon the human race. And the tribulation is the climactic outpouring of God's judgment of his wrath on all flesh. And when God's wrath is poured out on the world, the result is the end of the passage we read. The slain of the Lord will be many. The great tribulation will be a time of unprecedented death and destruction as God pours out his wrath on earth. Now, leave your finger in Isaiah and turn to Revelation chapter 6. We'll actually be going back and forth between Isaiah and Revelation throughout the morning, so you can leave both of those flagged. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 6. As we read through the Bible, the next prophet who really talks about the great tribulation in detail for us is Daniel. In Daniel, in chapter 9 of his book, he reveals to us that the Great Tribulation is going to be a period that lasts for seven years. It will be seven years of of distress and tribulation on earth. And, And we learn about that tribulation, about what it looks like from the book of Revelation. Revelation tells us that as the as the wrath of God is poured out, what it looks like is worldwide warfare and famine and earthquakes and and all kinds of environmental disasters and celestial disasters and worldwide darkness. It's it's a terrible time period. And it grows in severity, it grows in its pain as the period progresses. And at the end of it, here is what humanity sees. Look with me, chapter 6 of Revelation, starting in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? As the tribulation progresses, it gets so terrible. The wrath of God is is so overwhelming that all the enemies of God, notice uh, these guys aren't humbling themselves before God. They're not asking for mercy. Uh, They are so desperate that they begin to seek to take their own lives. They're trying to kill themselves as they head into the mountains just to find relief from the terrible wrath of God. As Jesus himself puts it in Matthew 24, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The the tribulation will be a time of unprecedented destruction and distress on earth. Fortunately, uh, we won't be here. The tribulation begins with the rapture of the church. That's what we believe, that the first moment of the tribulation is the the rapture or the removal of the church from earth. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Paul is talking about the moment of our resurrection. Now when a, when a church age believer dies, they are instantly in the presence of God, but not in a physical body. Their body is left here. They're just in the spirit with the Lord. But what Paul's talking about here is that the next thing that's going to happen in world history as the tribulation begins is Jesus is going to come down, not to earth, but to the sky somewhere up there. And he is going to call out to all his people. And the first to rise will be those who have died, believers who've died. Their bodies are resurrected and joined to their spirits and they are with Jesus. 
And then the next to rise will be all of those of us who are still alive, who've not yet died. In an instant, in a moment, we will be transformed. We will be resurrected without death. We will instantly be transformed and be joined to the Lord in the sky to be with him forever. So this is the resurrection of the church. From this moment on, you're in your resurrected bodies. You are perfected. You'll never die. You'll never experience pain or suffering. Sin will be eliminated for you. So this is when resurrection begins for us. Now, there's a lot of debate in the church. When exactly does the rapture happen? Is it uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? The reason we at Grace are, are pre-trib is primarily because of verses like 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. A number of reasons, but this is the big one. Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The great tribulation is all about the wrath of God. It's God's wrath poured out upon earth from from one continent to another, all the world covered in God's wrath. Well, God has promised in this verse and many other verses that believers will be spared from wrath. We will not experience the wrath of God. So just logically, we can't be here when the tribulation is happening. That's just a logical conclusion from the promises of God. We have to be removed first. Once God takes his church from the earth, then his wrath begins. He begins to judge the earth. But even in the midst of God's wrath, even in the midst of his judgment, God still has a gracious purpose in mind for the great tribulation. It's not all meant for judgment and destruction. There's actually a gracious purpose. God's purpose behind the tribulation is to bring about the salvation of Israel. God called Israel back in the Old Testament. He still cares about the Jews. The great tribulation is designed to bring about their salvation. Daniel has a lot to say about that. In Daniel chapter 12, he says, There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That's the great tribulation. And at that time, your people, Daniel, the the Israelites, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. God will bring about their rescue. This isn't just physical deliverance. This is spiritual deliverance. Through the great tribulation, all of Israel will be rescued from their sin. Paul makes that same point in Romans 11. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved." Partial hardening of Israel. That's what's going on right now. During the church age, both Jew and Gentile alike are welcomed by God into the church. But if we look at the numbers, there's a lot more Gentiles in the church than Jews. Most Jews alive on the planet today are actually atheists. They they don't even believe in God. But, But all that is about to change. Through the great tribulation, God will bring his covenant people, the Israelites, back to him. He will bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Daniel actually tells us how. He tells us that this tribulation that lasts for seven years, it's actually divided into two parts. During the first part of the tribulation, three and a half years long, a a new world ruler rises, a a guy called the Antichrist in scripture. Uh, He rises and and comes to a position of worldwide domination. and, And at some point in this first half of the tribulation, he establishes a covenant with the Israelites, a covenant of protection. He promises to protect them. But right in the middle of the tribulation, the three and a half year mark, he breaks the covenant and he launches a new holocaust against the Israelites. He begins to wipe them out. And in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of that suffering, the Israelites are brought to their knees before God. They have nowhere else to turn. 
And so in desperation and in humility, it says in the Old Testament, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will look to Jesus, their Messiah, and they will call out to him for help. They will call out in faith. And at that point, they will all be saved. All the Jews on the planet will will become believers. They will all be saved spiritually and then they will all be saved physically because as soon as they accept the gospel, the next event to happen is the end of the tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ. At the seven-year mark, Jesus shows up, and he doesn't stop in the atmosphere. He keeps coming all the way to earth. Look with me in the book of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. This is about the second coming of Christ to earth at the end of the great tribulation. We're going to pick it up, chapter 19, verse 11. This is the words of John. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both freemen and slaves, and small and great." And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Pretty overwhelming passage. What John is telling us is that at the end of the tribulation, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to show up and the whole world's going to see him. Won't be like the first coming when he came in humility in a manger. Now he's going to come in glory and power and the entire world will see it and the entire world will hate it. Because the world will be under the power of the Antichrist. They will be united in rebellion against God. And the Antichrist will gather all of his armies to make war against Jesus. And then Jesus shows up, he arrives on this planet, and with one word, all of his demonic enemies are imprisoned and all of his human enemies are slaughtered. When you look at the details, actually it's like the most anticlimactic battle in all of history. Jesus shows up with the armies of heaven and utters one word, they're all dead. It's like if you put me in the ring with Mike Tyson. The fight would be over after the first punch. That's, that's what's going to happen in the future. Jesus is going to show up and with one word, it's over. All of his human enemies are dead. All of his demonic enemies are imprisoned. It's actually interesting. Did you notice we're there? We're those guys, the, the army from heaven, we're on our horses, we're white, we're, we're resplendent, uh, we're there in all of our beauty and we do absolutely nothing. <laughs> we don't do anything in this battle, we just sit there and watch because Jesus doesn't need us. He shows up and with a word from his mouth, Almighty God decimates his enemies. At the end of the tribulation, there is not an unbeliever left alive on the planet. They're all dead. 
All of the demonic armies of Satan are all in prison. And then Jesus with his remnant of believers, because there's believers who do make it through the tribulation, both Jews and Gentiles alike, who the Antichrist is not able to martyr, a small remnant of humanity who are all believers, Jesus takes them and with them he begins the next phase of human history. That's the millennial kingdom. That's what comes after the tribulation. We learn about the millennial kingdom. Look back at Revelation chapter 20. Look with me in verse 4. John talks about what comes next. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, That right there at the end, that's why we get the title for this time period. Millennial, it means a thousand years. This is the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. In the millennial kingdom in scripture, it's all about God's covenants with Israel. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that the big pieces of the Old Testament are the four biblical covenants that God made with the nation of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. Now, at the death of Christ, the New Covenant replaced the Mosaic covenant. It's been set aside. So today, there are still three biblical covenants in place between God and the Israelites. The Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New. And all three of these are eternal and irrevocable covenants. They make irrevocable promises to the Israelites. God swore on his own name, on himself, that he would fulfill these covenants for Israel. And as Paul says in Romans 11, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God must fulfill these Old Testament covenants to the Israelites. That's the big idea of the future. God has got to fulfill his covenant promises. Now, he's already begun to do that. Uh, For example, the Abrahamic covenant, it promised Abraham that he would have countless descendants. Well, that's the Jews. There there are millions and and millions of Jewish people. That's the fulfillment of that promise. They're the descendants of Abraham. Uh, And in the Davidic covenant, God promised that he would raise up an eternal ruler, an eternal king for Israel from the line of David. Well, he's done that. That's Jesus. He's the eternal Davidic king for the nation of Israel. And the new covenant made a number of promises, two of which are the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, God's fulfilling that right now. Jew and Gentile alike that come to God in faith receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there are some of these promises that God is currently fulfilling, but there is much that still must be fulfilled. Much that has not yet been fulfilled that God promised to the Israelites. In particular, God promised to the Jewish people all of the promised land. That includes everything from modern day Syria to about half of modern day Egypt. He said, all of that will belong to you. Jesus will give it to you. Uh, He promised them eternal peace and prosperity and fertility. Uh, They will know nothing but blessing. God still has to fulfill that. God has promised that Israel will be the preeminent nation on earth, that all the rest of the world will look to Israel for peace and security and support. Those are all promises that have never been fulfilled. God must fulfill those in the future. That's what the millennial kingdom is all about. It is God's fulfillment of his covenant promises to the nation of Israel through Jesus Christ. And there's a number of details that scripture fills in for us about the millennial kingdom. It tells us that the world will be ruled by Jesus Christ and by faithful believers. We saw that in Revelation 20 verse 4. Jesus will rule over the entire earth, uh, but he won't rule alone. We, if we're faithful, will rule with him. Believers who have been faithful to Jesus in this life, who stayed faithful to him even in persecution, we will be at Jesus' side. 
ruling over the world with him for the entire millennial kingdom. We've talked about this before. This is all about the judgment seat of Christ. When a believer dies, the first thing that happens is they stand before Jesus for judgment. We are evaluated based on our works. Did we live faithful lives to Jesus? If we did live faithful lives, then Jesus will reward us with the opportunity to rule the earth with him. If we've not lived faithful lives, we're still saved, we're we're already in heaven, but we're denied that opportunity to rule over the earth with Jesus. So the millennial kingdom, it's ruled by Jesus and any of us who are faithful. Uh, We rule the millennial kingdom from Jerusalem. The the city of Jerusalem is the center of the earth during the millennial kingdom. Actually, that's a major theme of Isaiah. Throughout the book of Isaiah, he keeps bringing us back to Jerusalem, which he, he also calls Zion. And he talks about how in the future kingdoms, Jerusalem or Zion will be uh, the center, the preeminent place on earth. He tells us in chapter two, starting in verse two, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Zion, the mountain under the city of Jerusalem, will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Christ will rule over the earth from Jerusalem, literally from the temple mount. He will establish justice or laws for the entire earth from Jerusalem. So so it's his law that will go out from Jerusalem and it's all the nations of the earth that will come back to Jerusalem. They will come to Jerusalem to learn about God. They will come to Jerusalem to worship God. The entire earth will look to Jerusalem. It'll be the center of the earth. And from Jerusalem, God or Jesus, ruling from Jerusalem, will establish worldwide peace and justice. In the very next book of Isaiah, from what we just read, chapter 2, verse 4, it says of Jesus, He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Jesus will institute such perfect peace and righteousness and justice throughout the entire planet that nations won't even have armies anymore. But we won't even need weapons anymore because the world will be full of perfect peace. That's what the millennial kingdom will be like, a world of perfect peace and justice. That millennial kingdom, though, will end with one final test. One final test of humanity. Look with me back at Revelation. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Uh, Let me explain for a moment. Remember, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, there are people alive who've never died. They're all believers, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, They begin to have children. But during the millennial kingdom, the curse of sin is still present. We're, we're still sinners by nature. So those children, they're bent towards sin. They still have to make a choice to believe the gospel and align themselves with Jesus. Throughout the millennial kingdom, most will make that choice. But especially towards the end, some will not. And right at the end, Satan is released to, to gather all the closet rebels in the world. 
All the people who have decided not to follow Jesus Christ, he will gather them all and convince them that they can wage war against Jesus. They will gather into a a massive army to wage war against the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This battle ends just like the last one. They they gather together and, and before the battle even begins, fire falls from heaven. They're all dead. They're simply wiped out at that moment. And all of God's demonic enemies, Satan and all of his forces are immediately confined to the lake of fire, their permanent abode. They are cast away from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. And that's the end of the millennial kingdom. And that ushers in the next major event, the next major epic of human history, the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the eternal state actually begins with judgment, one final judgment of humanity by God. Look with me again, chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is called the great white throne judgment of God. God shows up in in our universe and he judges all unbelievers. This is all unbelievers who are here. They are at this moment resurrected. So unbelievers who have died, they are joined back to resurrected bodies and now stand before God for judgment based on their deeds. And like all human beings, their deeds are shown to be sinful. They demonstrate that they deserve the wrath of God. And so they are thrown to the same place where all of Satan's forces are, to the lake of fire, where they are confined for all eternity, separated from the presence of God forever. That's the final judgment. That's actually the note that Isaiah ends his book on. Leave your finger in Revelation 20 and turn back to Isaiah, the very last verse of the book. Isaiah 66, verse 24. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. It's a pretty depressing way to end your book. (laughs) Reason Isaiah ends on this note of judgment. That we will go forth and see the corpses of all the men who were God's enemies. In the lake of fire for all eternity. The reason Isaiah ends here is to make the point. At the end of the day, God wins. All the forces aligned against him, human and demonic, in the end, they are judged for eternity. They are destroyed. They lose. That's Isaiah's point. For all of those who choose to reject God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, this is their fate. They will experience the wrath of God for all eternity. Now, for us who who do accept that gift who do trust that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, our eternity will be utterly different. It will be completely opposite of theirs. Rather than wrath for all eternity, we will have joy. Nothing but joy in the new heavens and the new earth. Back to Revelation. Once again, chapter 20, verse 11. 
Let's look at that verse again. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. When God shows up in our universe in all his glory, when God shows up on his white throne in this universe that is cursed and broken by sin, it simply disintegrates at his feet. The the entire universe, it simply melts away before him. And, And with this universe annihilated, God begins a new creation. He creates a new. Look at chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Uh, The primary thing that this passage tells us about the eternal state is in eternity, heaven and earth are one. There's no longer a separation between heaven and earth. It's not God up there, us down here. No, heaven, the new Jerusalem comes down and rests upon the earth. God lives here with us on the new earth. For all eternity, we bask in the light of God's glory. We enjoy the intimate presence of God. As a result, there is no suffering, there is no pain, there is no death, there is nothing but joy in the presence of God. That's actually where Isaiah takes us as well. Last passage we'll look at this morning. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. Through Isaiah, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Primary thing Isaiah wants us to understand is that all of the sorrow and pain of this life will be completely replaced by joy in the new heavens and the new earth. We will know nothing but joy for all of eternity. In fact, we will be so joyous that Isaiah tells us there in verse 17, we won't even remember the pain of this life. The suffering, the disappointment, the futility of this life. It's not even going to be a distant memory in your mind. You'll never think of it again. I don't think it's because you can't remember it. I think it's because it simply never crosses your mind again. You are so overwhelmed with the joy of God. Eternity is every moment a new discovery of joy that you never bother to think of the past. The pain and suffering of this life are never remembered again. All you know is joy. In fact, it's really interesting the wording that Isaiah uses in verse 18. Literally, he says, For behold, I create Jerusalem gladness and her people joy. He he creates people joy. Your new nature will be joy. In eternity, you don't choose between sadness, depression, boredom, or joy. You don't make that choice. You you always only experience joy. It's your natural unwavering state for all of eternity. You can't feel bored. You can't feel sad. All you can feel is joy because you are joy. That's your new nature. For all eternity, you will experience nothing but overwhelming joy. And you won't be alone. Did you notice God will experience nothing but joy as well? In the new heavens and the new earth, all that God sees will please him. 
Everything will be perfected. Everything will be right. And so God for all eternity will experience nothing but joy. He will do nothing but rejoice with us. That's what eternity is. It is God and redeemed humanity united forever in joy. Unending, unceasing, limitless joy. That's the eternity that God has in store for all who trust in Jesus. And that leads us to our application this morning. For all of us who have trusted in the death of Jesus for our sins and his resurrection from the dead, what does God want us to do with this knowledge? Why did he reveal the future to us? Why does it matter to us? Well, first reason that God revealed the future to us is he wants us to understand we as God's people have no need to demand justice now or demand pleasure now. If you belong to God, if you've believed in Jesus' death and resurrection, you don't need justice now. When, when somebody wrongs you, when they hurt you, you don't need justice. Justice is coming. God's going to provide it. And in eternity, when you're experiencing nothing but unending and limitless joy, you won't even remember the pain you're in now. You, you won't even, it'll never come to your mind again. You don't need to demand justice now. And you don't need to demand pleasure now. We need to understand our best life is not now. This isn't what we're living for. This is a life full of sin and pain and curse. What we're looking for is the future. When everything will be right. When everything will be perfect. That will be our best life. And based on those realities, the final thing to think about is that God reveals the future to us so that we would be a people who live with great hope and share the gospel with great urgency. Of all the people on earth, we should be the most hopeful. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to experience pain and suffering and disappointment. But what it does mean is that in the midst of the pain and suffering of this life, you should have hope because your pain's going to come to an end. And God is going to replace even the memory of your pain with unending joy. You have nothing but hope in the future. We should be a people of great hope, even when life is painful. And we should be a people of great urgency. We should be sharing the gospel like this is our last day on earth because it could be. The, the rapture is imminent. According to scripture, there is no other event that has to happen on this planet before Jesus calls us home. He could call us home before I pray and close this sermon. It could happen at any moment. And when it happens, a chain of events begins that ends for those who reject Jesus with eternal wrath. We should be sharing the gospel because it is their only hope. The only way to deliver humanity from the pain and suffering that awaits them is through the good news of the gospel. So share the gospel boldly, faithfully. Tell everyone you know, God wants to rescue you. He wants to give you joy in his presence for all eternity. And he's made it possible through the death and resurrection of his son. Let's pray for God's help to share that good news. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much that you did not leave us in the dark about the future. Thank you that you have revealed in great detail to us what is coming. Not the small things, but the big things. What awaits this world, what awaits humanity, what awaits the church, what awaits each and every one of us. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that for us who've trusted in your Son, the future is nothing but joy. Thank you, Lord. We don't deserve that. We deserve your punishment. Thank you so much that in grace, Jesus took our punishment in our place. And thank you that rather than wrath, you offer us eternal life, unceasing and unending joy in your presence. Thank you for the future that awaits us, Lord. We pray that 
by knowing that future, we would become a people of great hope. That even when we're in pain, even when we're suffering, even when we're disappointed, yet still we would have hope about what's coming in the future. That we would rest in hope upon your promises. And we pray, Lord, that you would grow us to be a people who share the gospel with fervency, with boldness, with urgency. Please, Lord, help us to go from here and model Jesus Christ's life to other people and share Jesus' death and resurrection with all who will listen. Please, Lord, help us to be bold witnesses of the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Father, that you offer salvation to us who so patently don't deserve it. Thank you for your grace and goodness we find in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right. God bless you guys. See you next week.